So this morning, Neil Crook is going to be sharing with us. Neil has a ministry at Boston Consulting Group. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Neil works at Boston Consulting Group. Everyone around him, I'm sure, is blessed. That was slightly a joke there because we're, in one sense, we have foreign missions. <laughs> Having problems? And then we have guys like Neil who are just hitting it hard every day downtown, taking the commuter train in, living their life for the Lord, and there's rich ministry in his life as well. We're so delighted. We're going back into, it feels like going back into, because we have an interruption, into um, Titus. So, finishing up that book. So, bless my brother, Lord. Thank you so much for... For the word that grows strongly in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. How is everyone doing? Good. So, as Mark's just mentioned, we have been spending the last few weeks in Titus. And we're going to be closing out that series today. We're going to be looking at Titus 2. So, if you have a Bible or a phone, feel free to pull it up. Uh, if you don't, don't worry. I think it's going to be on screen. So, this is, this is Titus 2. This is Paul the Apostle writing to Titus. And he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, nor slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, not be, put to, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants to be, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke them with rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, when I was an undergrad, some time ago now, I was part of the Christian Union on campus. And one weekend we decided we were going to take a big group away and we were going to have a time of a retreat time of worship and prayer and uh, various teachings and the like. I was one of a group of about 12 who volunteered and were doing the cooking for that group. And I remember one particular mealtime, we gave people the option of a vegetarian pasta dish or chicken. And uh, one of the guys who was on the team went out of the back to the refrigerators and grabbed these huge trays of chicken. And I have to say, it's an image that's never quite left me to this day. He came in, and I say they were chicken, but in truth, that's more of an assumption. I don't have any real proof of that. All I saw was this plate of kind of pinkish flesh, there may have been some other colors in there as well that probably had no business to be there. And there was the intermingled with like bone and maybe some feathers in the mix too. 
he came and he walked in and he put this down and we all looked at it and we looked at each other and without a word being spoken, we had this tacit agreement that not one word of this needed to be spoken outside of the kitchen. <laughs> anyway, we cooked this stuff up and to my memory, we served it and no one really complained, which was great. And to my memory, again, there was no food poisoning, which was also great. But what was interesting is that of all the 12 people cooking in the kitchen that day, not one of them ate the chicken. (laughs) If you'd been there as an outsider and as a non-chef, what would you have thought when the chef won't eat their own food? And what do we think of people that don't practice what they preach? Whether that be a politician who is standing for family values and espousing family values, and then you find out there's extramarital affair in their life. Or whether it's an athlete who stands up and says, oh, you know, we should, we should work hard and through effort we can succeed. And then you find out they've been taking performance-enhancing drugs. You know, what do you think of that? About the same time that I was cooking the chicken, um, the Christian band DC Talk released an album, and it was called Jesus Freak. Clearly dating myself now. Thank you very much. Um, It is what it is. Anyway, they released the album, Jesus Freak. And the fourth track of that album was called What If I Stumble? And it started with a quote from a guy called Brennan Manning, who was an author and he was a priest um, and he was a public speaker. And he said, the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And what Brennan Manning is saying is that this isn't, you know, this isn't limited to people that won't eat chicken. This isn't limited to politicians or athletes. This is a problem in the church. This is a problem that we struggle with. And it's something that hampers us as we try and take the gospel to other people. And it's exactly the situation that Paul's addressing in Titus 2. He's saying to Titus, you know, Titus, you've got to teach people and you've got to show them you can't just talk a good game. You've got to walk a good game. And he says, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk a good game? And Paul says three things are important. He says, you've got to live consistently. He says, you've got to live externally. And he says, you've got to live dependently. So I want to talk through each of those in turn. So first off, to live consistently. What do I mean by live consistently? So basically, it's what we've just been talking about. The actions that we take are in alignment with the things that we say we believe. In other words, for a Christian, it means that if you have godly beliefs, if you believe in God, the things that you do are in alignment with the things that you say you believe. Paul starts off and he says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He then digs in. He starts to expand on what the teaching is supposed to be. They're supposed to be showing them, okay, you want to live these certain behaviors. You want to show these certain characteristics, right? And he's saying, these are the traits that you should demonstrate. Later in the passage, we're going to talk through, then he gets on to talk about, okay, what is this sound doctrine that he's talking about? And he'll unpack that he's talking about Jesus coming and the life and work of Jesus on earth as those godly beliefs, as those sound doctrine. And he is saying there's a certain standard of behavior which accords with or is suitable to or is fitting with what we believe about Jesus. So he's saying if you believe these things about Jesus, there is a certain behavior or characteristics that are suitable for what you believe. He also says, you know, it's possible to live inconsistently. That very verse starts with but. And it starts with but because Paul is contrasting what he's telling Titus to do with what he's been talking about some people have been doing in the Crete church 
which he was talking about in chapter 1. He was talking about some false teachers that had crept in, people that were teaching the wrong thing. And he says about them, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, which sounds an awful lot like the Brennan Manning quote that we started with. Our culture today very much values consistency. We value authenticity. To some extent, we even value it more highly than the things that actually people underneath it believe. I've lost track of the number of times when I've heard someone say something to the effect of, well, you know, I don't really agree with what they say. I don't really agree with what they believe. But at least they're consistent. At least they're authentic with that. We value that. And people may not agree with what we believe. They may not agree with the gospel. But there's a measure of credibility and respect that comes when we live consistent with what we say. Paul says these false teachers, they profess to know God, but their inconsistency proves that that isn't the case. They don't really know him. A few weeks ago now, Brian, if you'll remember, spoke about Titus 1, and the main idea that Brian was trying to say is what we believe drives our behavior. And Paul in this passage is noting the corollary of that. He's saying if what you believe drives your behavior, then if I look at your behavior, it tells me what you believe. If you've grown up in a church or you've been around church much, there's a, a pretty good chance that you'd have kind of at least thought about or heard about the kind of the head versus heart dichotomy, right? So the idea that someone will come along and says, oh, I, I believe that in my head, but in my heart, I, it's not really sunk in. I'm not really, I'm struggling with it. And it, it kind of implies there's different levels of knowing something. And the problem with that is that it gives us an impression of the heart and what the heart is that isn't really aligned with the Bible. Because when the Bible speaks of the heart, it talks about the core of us. And it talks about everything included in the core, including the things we think. It includes the things that we feel, the emotions and the desires we have. And it includes the the actions that we take, what we will. So it doesn't split the two. And the danger is if we do, we credit ourselves with believing something and then just say, well, we kind of, you know, we kind of just struggle with, with living it out. We might say something along the lines of, well, you know, I believe in my head that God can provide for me and my family. But in my heart, I feel that if I lose my job, then I'm, we're going to be sunk. And then what do we do when our boss comes along and asks us to do something maybe ethically on the, on the border? We might say, okay, yeah, no, I believe that God is, is my all. He's everything I need. And yet we hang on to that unhealthy relationship because we're afraid of being alone. The 18th century theologian, Jonathan Edwards, spoke a little about this. He wrote a book called The Religious Affections. And in it, he said that this this head versus heart split is just not real. It's not right. He said they're inextricably linked and you can't decouple them. And he said the areas where you struggled to... Well, let me rephrase that. The areas where you see inconsistency between what you believe in your saying your belief and what you do, your behavior, he said those are highlighting areas where you don't really, really believe. He said there isn't different levels of knowing. So Paul says, I want you to live consistently. Don't live inconsistently, on the flip. He then goes through the list of behaviors that are suitable or fit with this sound doctrine. So he talks about older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Young men, likewise, to be self-controlled. Older women to be reverent in behavior, not slaves to much wine. To train the younger women to love their husbands, which seems a little strange to have to say. And self-controlled. And then for servants or slaves, not to be argumentative or pilfering, but to be pleasing and to show good faith. Now, Paul has gone from everyone from the old to the young to servants in the household. Household was the focus in Greco-Roman culture, right? And so what he's saying is that everybody in the household is included. 
So he's saying there is no one that can come along and say the Christian message or the implications of it don't apply to me. He's saying they apply to everyone. I think the next question for me is why does he list these specific behaviors? Because if we were to sit down and say, okay, what are the things that a Christian should do? We'd soon find out that this list isn't exhaustive. There's other things that we would, we would add to it. So why these? And I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about what life was like in Crete at the time. So at the time, social drinking and heavy drinking was pretty much the norm. For guys, particularly, sexual promiscuity outside of marriage was somewhat tolerated, if not somewhat expected. Coupled with that, there was this thing that they called the new woman paradigm coming through, which in a world of primarily arranged marriages said, okay, women, you can have some more freedom. And again, there was a level of even sexual promiscuity tolerated outside of marriage. Slavery was prevalent, and there was a huge range of who was slaves. Everyone from the people that the Romans had captured, so various different people groups were slaves, and also um, people who were local but had struggled and found themselves in debt. They would often sell themselves into slavery to pay for their debts. So there was this, there was this uh, prevalence, and there was a big range in uh, races, in education, and everything in the slave contingent. They could be verbally argumentative, and petty theft apparently around the home was pretty common. So into this, Paul says, look, be sober-minded. Don't be slaves to much wine. Don't find yourself sucked into the culture that says you've got to go out and you've got to drink heavily. He says, be self-controlled and pure. And the word that he used there for pure suggests that he was probably talking to the sexual promiscuity that was happening. And Paul, he doesn't condone slavery, but he says, okay, I know that there are Christians who are slaves. And he says to them, don't do what the rest of the people around you do. Don't be difficult for your master, but be pleasing, be of good faith. Don't be pilfering and arguing and be difficult. So Paul is saying, stand in stark contrast to the culture around you. But he doesn't just say stand in contrast. He also says there's good in culture, and I affirm it, and I think you should affirm it and take it further. Hellenistic uh, values at the time, uh, traditional Hellenistic values said, okay, dignity and self-control, these are important. These are big, good virtues. And Paul says, strangely, you know, dignity, self-control, you should do that. He's saying these are good cultural values. I want you to affirm them. But then he also takes them further and he says, okay, well, arranged marriages are common and respect and honor is a big thing. But wives, husbands, don't just respect and honor your wives, love them. Take it further. Love them. I want to ask you today, how do you feel how Christianity interacts with the culture around? Do you feel that it's largely antagonistic and you feel that you're constantly at odds with culture? Or do we feel that there's things that we can affirm? I want to suggest that unless we can sensitively enter into culture, see things that we can affirm and engage with and, and really uh, value and show that we value, it's unlikely that we're going to be able to create a platform in which we can ever really challenge people on the things that we don't think are good. As you interact with your neighbors and co-workers and family, think, well, where are the places where I can engage and even then take on and challenge? An example of this might be, um, I, I speak to many people and they seem to struggle with the idea of God as um, a judging God. They think he's punishing and unforgiving. And they, they struggle with the idea, how can God be a God of love at the same time whilst punishing people? It doesn't equate. But equally, if you ask them, I'm pretty sure they say, yes, we, we affirm love. We think people should be loving. And we affirm justice. We think, you know, the poor and the oppressed should be protected. We should look after them. Now, you can go to them and you can say, yeah, we affirm that. God is, God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. And we think those things are great. But you can also point out that those two things have to coincide, have to co-relate together. 
How can God be a God of love if he isn't a God of justice? What do you do when someone goes into a school and randomly shoots people and shows they have no value for life? How can you show that you are loving if you don't hold those people to account and if you don't say there is justice required? You need justice. You need some accountability to be loving. You can't be a community. You can't love one another without also requiring justice. So Paul says to them, I want you to live consistently. I want the things you do to reconcile with the things that you say and the things that you believe. Don't get pulled into every cultural norm, but affirm what's good and stand against what's not. The next question is, well, why should we do that? And to that, Paul says, okay, you should live externally. So what do I mean by that? I think primarily when we think about how we behave and making sure our behavior and our actions are interlined, I think we think in terms of, well, I love God, and therefore I should do things in response that show that. Or we might think, um, well, if I, if I obey God, then there's blessings, and if I disobey, disobey, well, maybe there's discipline. And those things are kind of focused on us. They're kind of our response, what happens to us, and they're inwardly focused. These things are true. But that's not Paul's primary concern in this passage. He says, what if you think of your behavior primarily how it impacts other people and what they think of the gospel? So where do we see that in the text? There are three um, that statements that Paul makes, and he's saying them in response. So he says, you should have these behaviors. And then in verse, verse 4, he says that the word of God may not be reviled, or we could say um, defamed or slandered or demeaned. He then says in verse 8, do these things so that an opponent may, not be put to, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And the idea here is that the opponents, there's, there's nothing they can say that's morally substandard about the Christians. All they can do is look at their own behavior and see where their own behavior doesn't align. And then in verse 10, he says, do these things that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Um, adorn, the word adorn is typically used of outward appearance. It talks about making things look attractive. Now, you, you may or not guess, but I'm not a big user of makeup. But... I am told when properly used, it it accentuates. So it draws attention to beauty and features that are already there, and it accentuates, it makes people notice. And what Paul is saying is the behavior of Christians should be like that. It accentuates the beauty and the character that's already in the gospel, and it makes it outwardly attractive to other people. So Paul is focused on the external implications of our behavior, how that impacts other people and how it impacts the spread of the gospel. David Hansen, who is a pastor in Ohio, wrote a book called The Art of Pastoring. And in that, he said that Christians are like walking parables of Jesus, in that we are people who, by our nature and the way we interact and behave, we reflect the character and the goodness of Jesus in the things we do. So if that's the case, the question I want to ask is, well, what does our behavior say? And what does our behavior reflect on the character of Jesus? You know, when we are in college and we're interacting with our college mates, what might that tell a non-Christian about the nature of Jesus who we say we worship? When we're in work during the week, are our co-workers able to align how we talk about being at church on Sunday with what we do and how we interact with them during the week? If you're a parent, what are the things you do and the choices that you make tell your kids about the character and nature of Jesus? I was, and to some extent still am, although I'm praying about it, a fairly vocal driver. 
I will often give wise counsel to those around me (laughs) whose driving is clearly substandard. I was driving along one day, and a, a kind and loving gentleman pulled right in front of me and slammed on his brakes. And I had to slam on the brakes to not go into the trunk, which I did. And as I'm sat there, a little voice behind me says, Idiot! What was he playing at? Caused me to rethink. <laughs> what is it that we do, and when, through what we do, what does it tell our kids about the character and nature of Jesus? I want to make something really, really clear at this point, though. I am not saying that we are able to save people. We very much believe that the only way that people can be saved and people's hearts can be changed is through God working through hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit. We have neither the power nor the responsibility, ultimately, to save people. Yet we are involved in the process. A professor, when I was up at Gordon-Conwell, used to say, God does everything, and we do something. And that something, our part, is to live externally. It's to live with a focus on others and thinking about how our behavior impacts them and what they think of God and the gospel. So Paul has said to us, okay, I want you to live consistently. I want the things that you do to match up with the things you say you believe as you engage culture. I want you to live externally. I want you to do that with a focus on other people for their benefit, to bring the gospel. And as I think about this, I don't know about you, but as I hear these things that I'm saying and as I think about these things, and I think, well, what does that mean for me? And I I, I feel that I almost have to be sinless to stop somebody, so that I don't stop somebody else coming to Christ. And I feel that that puts such a burden on me, just an impossible burden that I almost want to quit before I've started. What does it mean that if I sin, maybe it impacts how someone else approaches God? And it just, it really feels too much. And Paul knows that. And Paul sees that. And Paul says, the third thing I want you to keep in mind is that you need to live dependently. So let's talk about living dependently. At this point, we're we're at verses 11 through 14-ish. And we've hit the real heart of the the passage, but also the heart of the, the, the whole book of Titus. So if... For whatever reason, my scintillating British wit and charm has not kept your attention. Now's a good time to dig back in. (laughs) Put your phone away, stop taking selfies, and have a listen. So looking at verses, uh, well, actually, there's a couple of things I want to say. So he starts off this section, 11 through 14, with four. And it's an obvious point, but I want to pull out. He's saying, all these things that I've told you in the prior verses... For, or because, or since, what I'm about to tell you now. So we've got a very clear link by Paul of what I'm about to tell you, here's the reason, here's the why, and to some extent, here's the how of what we've just talked about. There's that link. The other thing I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this section is that the things that we're called to do, the actions that we're supposed to take, always grow out of what Christ has already done on our behalf. So the things that we're called to do, the commands, grow out of what's already been done. If there's any grammarians in the house, we say the imperative grows out of the indicative. The imperative, the actions, the commands, they always come out of what's already been done, the indicative. If we try and take on the commands without resting in the completed work of Christ, one of two things will happen. Either we're going to get proud in our perceived success, or we're going to get miserable, despairing, and despondent over the times we fail. Right? 
The only way we can steer that middle line is by recognizing that the commands come out what's already been done and resting in that. So let's talk about how Paul says we should do that. If any of you are or were a gymnast, um, every now and again my wife feels the need when the Olympics is on to watch the gymnastics, and apparently that also seems to mean that I have to watch the gymnastics. And uh, as I look at them and I, I see the things they do and the positions they get in, I find myself subconsciously flinching because I know that if that was me at this point, something would be tearing. <laughs> but it's interesting what they can do. Now, if you're one of those people, you're going to love this passage because what Paul is saying is we simultaneously need to face forwards and backwards. <laughs> so let's look at backwards. In verses 11 and 12, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So Paul talks about this grace of God that's appeared, and he says this grace of God that's appeared has brought salvation to all people. And he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the first coming of Jesus when Jesus came to earth, became a man, lived a life, and died. And he's saying we look back to that. He's saying that that salvation event, that work and death and resurrection of Christ, brought salvation to all people. Now, he's not saying that everybody will be saved. He's just saying that it's possible, that there's a possibility that all can be saved. And he says one aspect of that work of Christ is that he's come to bring life change. And that life change, though, isn't something that Christ has done solely, but it's also something we do with Christ Note, he says, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. So it trains us. It's come, it's come with this purpose, but it's to train us to do something. And he then says, you know, that necessary work on our part is a turning from something and a turning to something. He talks about, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to live self-controlled, upright godly lives in the present age. Now, Hellenistic thinking and Hellenistic philosophy said, you know, as, as people get more educated with training, with discipline, they can become better people. And in the Western philosophy, probably around about the time of the Enlightenment, kind of 17th, 18th century, we really started to bring that into our thinking. We really started to say, okay, we can understand things. We can work things out. We can use science to figure things out. And with education and with the right discipline, we can make ourselves a better people. The problem is, Paul says, that's not really what the Bible says. Paul says that unless we turn from something using and with and empowered by the completed work of Christ, we can never hope to do the, the piece, the, the getting better piece. He says everything stands on turning from one way of life and turning to another. And he's talking about sin here. He's talking about turning from sin and towards a godly life. Now, we believe, as Christians, that when Adam chose to sin and when we replicate that sin in our lives, we lost the ability not to sin. So we're no longer able not to sin. That's not to say that every single decision that we make is sinful. It's more saying that the general direction of our lives is one that's now focused on us and is focused on our self-interest and no longer worshiping God and putting him first. When Jesus came and he died on the cross one of the, the actions of the cross was to restore that relationship with God, to put us in a place now where we are able not to sin. 
He's restoring a freedom to us that says we're no longer bound, we no longer have to do sin, but we have the ability to choose to worship God and to live for him. So Paul is saying one of the big drivers of behavior, one of the big things that's going to help us to live the way that Christ is telling us to live is to recognize that we're no longer on the same footing anymore. We now have that freedom. We now have that ability no longer to sin, and we can choose to live in light of that changed state. So that was looking backwards. So then looking forwards. In verse 13, he says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. So everybody has need for hope. In 2011, Psychology Today wrote an article, and they said, hope structures your life in anticipation of future and influences how you feel in the present. Similar to optimism, hope creates a positive mood about an expectation, a goal, or a future situation. And then note this, such mental time travel influences your state of mind and alters your behavior in the present. What they're saying is that hope impacts how we feel and ultimately how we behave. Happily for us, that confirms what Paul said 2,000 years before. I didn't check the footnotes, but I have this feeling they didn't credit Paul. But you know, to be a Christian in our culture, and to be honest, the culture throughout the time, is often a struggle, right? It's, you can face derision, you can face scorn, you can be called backwards, and those, those are maybe the good days. Right? It's, it's a struggle. And what Paul says is that you want to make that stand. If you want to make a stand without recognizing that life has purpose or without recognizing that you have a hope, that's impossible. You're not going to struggle through. But he says we're not without hope. So what is that hope? In the, the next part of verse 13, he says, it's the appearing of the glory of God, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's saying it's the second coming of Jesus is our great hope. You see, when Jesus died and when he uh, rose again from the dead and restored our relationship with God, he kicked us off on a path of, um, of, of that restored relationship. But it wasn't fulfilled. We still struggled with sin. We still struggled with difficulties. With There's still sickness and uh, various different things that sin has caused in the world. But Paul says when we look forward and we look forward to the future and the coming back of Christ, the return of Christ, there is going to be a full fulfillment of that. The thing that Paul says is, you know, don't recognize that this struggle that we have in life now, that's not eternal. It's temporary. The only thing that's eternal is a life that's either fully with or fully without God. That's the only thing that's eternal. So he says, okay, the other big driver of our behavior is looking forward to this second appearance of Christ. It's the big thing that helps us live in accord with sound doctrine. And then in verse 14, he quickly looks back again at what Jesus has done. And he talks about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, if you weren't convinced at the looking back and the looking forward argument, if you have pictures of gymnasts in your head and the impossibility of that, listen to this. Because if those things didn't convince you to live in a certain way, this will. Because that phrase, a people for his own possession, comes right out of the Old Testament. It comes from a verse in Exodus 19, verse 5, which says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. So let me give you some context. At this point in Exodus, what's happened 
is that God's people, Israel, have been in slavery to the Egyptians. God has pulled them out from that and he's miraculously rescued them from that. And he's taken them to Mount Sinai. And they're camped at Mount Sinai. And Moses, the leader of the people, has gone up the mountain and God's speaking to them. And he said, tell my people this. Tell my people now, if they obey me and they, do, they keep my covenant, they're going to be my own treasured possession. And what Paul's saying is to these Christians in Crete is, that's you now, right? You are the people of God. You are God's chosen people. And in the same way that the Israelites were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, I've rescued you out of bondage and slavery to sin. Now come, live in the light of that, and you're going to be my treasured possession. He's offering them relationship. He's offering them adoption. He's offering them the chance to be fully back into relationship with God, with that freedom once more that was taken away. Note again, you have been saved. Therefore, do this. You don't do this to be saved. You do this because you've been saved. Now, what's the result? Verse 14, <coughs> excuse me, verse 14 says, Now we are zealous for good works. What are good works in this context? It's those deeds that we do for the benefit of others, right? It's not to gain acceptance, but in response. And it's a life that's lived with appropriate behavior so that we can glorify God and witness to those around us. So Paul's told us that we should check our actions, that they reflect our behavior. We should live consistently. He said, look, primarily I want you to do that because of the witness that it is for other people. And he said, I know that it's tough. Do it dependently. So what do we conclude from all this? When our actions and our behavior don't align, clearly there's an impact on those around us, right? We see that. We talked about that at the beginning. Some things to kind of ask, you know. What would someone who doesn't know God infer from our character from watching us? Do we help people see the beauty of God and be drawn to him? Do we allow the truth of the gospel to be shown through the actions we take and the words we speak? But beyond an impact on others, there's also an impact on us, right? When our behavior and our actions don't align, there's something that psychologists call cognitive dissonance. And it's just that. It's when your behavior doesn't align with your actions and you feel uncomfortable as a result. An obvious example might be if you know that smoking's bad, but you still do it. Right? In our heads, we know smoking's not great, but we can't change our actions. And they say there's two things that typically happen in this situation because you don't like this discomfort. You don't like this strange feeling. So either you reduce the importance of what you believe or you change your beliefs. And if we persistently live in a contradiction between what we say we believe and what we do, there's going to be an impact on us. And we recognize this, right? The more we do this, the more our relationship with God is impacted and it's changed and it's weakened and it's diminished. You know, eventually, if we keep doing this, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. And we're going to get to the point where our relationship with God is either entirely ritual and therefore, you know, the, the idea of a personal relationship with God almost disappears. Or we get to the point where we start to question and we think, you know, do I really believe this? Do I really think this is true? I think realistically for most of us, if we think about this, if there's perfect obedience this end of the spectrum and if there's perfect disobedience this end of the spectrum, nobody sits at either end. You know, we're somewhere in the middle and we probably fluctuate around depending on the day. So what do we do when we're in that place? Well, Paul says, okay, look backwards. 
Remember what Christ has done. Remember how he's put you in the footing that you now have with God through Christ. And he said also, look forward. Live with our eyes on the future. If you thought Jesus was going to return tonight, how would it impact your behavior? I don't mean the big bucket list-like things, like I'm I'm not going to go to work tomorrow or I'm going to go to Disney or whatever it might be. I'm thinking about the small things, right? Would you be impatient with your spouse when you got home if you thought Jesus was coming back that night? Would you be a part of the office gossip around the water cooler if you thought Jesus was back that afternoon? What internet sites might you or might you not look at if you thought Jesus was going to come back tomorrow morning? And I think ultimately for us, it's a question of focus, right? If you try and wrestle a bone from a dog, you're going to fight quite a lot. You're probably not going to get that bone off them. A friend of mine always used to say, never wrestle a pig. You both get muddy and the pig kind of likes it. (laughs) But that's what's going to happen. You're going to wrestle and wrestle and you're going to achieve nothing, right? But instead, if you go along and you put down a bigger, more juicier bone, what's going to happen? The dog's going to drop what he's got. He's going to go for that bone. I don't want to belabor a point. I'm not comparing us to dogs with bones. But I am saying there is some similarity, right? Because if you try and wrestle your behavior, if you try and wrestle it into line, you're either going to become proud or you're going to fail and become despondent. But if you focus your eyes on Jesus, if you focus your eyes on that better prize, it's not going to stop being a struggle at times. It's not going to suddenly become easy. But our hearts will change, and our hearts will be drawn to Christ and what he's calling us. And it will be uh, something that we can do with our focus on him and our prayer and our praise on him. So let's try not to wrestle bones. Spend time with Jesus. Soak ourselves in Jesus. Look back. Look at what Jesus has done. And look forward to the hope that he brings on his second coming. If a band want to come up, I'm just going to pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you sent your son. And I thank you through the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of your son, you restored us to relationship with you, and you made that possible. Lord, I pray that we would live in the knowledge of what you've done and our new standing and our new relationship with you as we think about what we do during the days. And Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts, Lord, as we spend time with you, Lord, as we get to know you more, as we become more and more in love with you. Father, I pray that you would capture our hearts and you would fix our eyes on the future. Lord, we remember that hope that we have, Lord, that hope that one day uh, Jesus is going to return and that's going to usher in the full fulfillment of God's kingdom. It's going to usher in that full fulfillment of what it's like to be in perfect relationship with God again, what it is to be in perfect relationship with one another again. Lord, what you'd always intended from the very beginning, that we broke through sin, Jesus came and he did it. And he made it possible again, and there will be a time when that happens. Father, I pray that that would impact us, Lord. Lord, I pray that that would change our hearts, not just our behavior, but Lord, it would change our hearts, which drives our behavior. And Lord, I pray that we as a community demonstrate the love that you've poured out on us and into us. And Lord, that those around us would be impacted. Lord, that they might see the, the love that we pour out, the, uh, first and foremost for you, but for each other as well. 
and they might be challenged about God. They might be challenged at what they thought was true about God and they might say, okay, if this person's behaving this way, maybe this is a God who loves. Maybe this is a God who cares. Maybe this is a God who cares about individuals and maybe it's a God who cares about me. Lord, I pray that in Boston and as, as we go out this week, Father, I want to pray that you would impact our hearts and that we would live in a way that impacts other people. Lord, I pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, in Boston, your kingdom come, your will be done. Amen. Thank you, Neil. Excellent.